I'm Bonnie. And I'm Sydney. And this is Introduced from Wisconsin Sea Grant. Last week we were curious how easy it would be to order something illegal online. We found that ordering some types of aquatic invasive species is actually pretty easy, unfortunately. So did you get your plant? Sydney? So I ordered water hyacinth and mine actually came like within three days of ordering it and I named it Tim Campbell after our aquatic invasive species specialist Tim Campbell. I think uh, his container is a little bit small because he keeps if you can see like he's dying a little bit around the edges Um, but like there's always (laughs) new growth that comes up like from the top. Really? Well, my plan arrived as well. Um, I was getting worried because it didn't come, and then I realized somehow I didn't order it. So I ordered a different one, Um, (laughs) and I got five-piece dwarf water lettuce. Do you want to see them? Yeah. Beautiful. (laughs) I like the little habitat. (laughs) So... They're like five little pieces with roots, and they are fuzzy. They're really soft and fuzzy. And then I had them sitting in my kitchen, and I saw this like tiny little red worm that was like dancing about the leaves and like eating them. (laughs) Did we ever identify what that worm was? I don't know how to identify worms. Did the worm come on the plant, or did the worm find the plant afterward? Because if the worm came on the plant, then that's like... Like a co-invasion on our hands. Yeah. I hope that the worm came on the plants because otherwise it would be like in my water. But yeah. And there's also duckweed in here, I noticed. Oh, interesting. Which they sold me as well. So we have Wisconsin Sea Grant Aquatic Invasive Species Specialist Tim Campbell with us here today to help us figure out what our next steps are. Hey, Tim. Hi, Bonnie. Hi, Sydney. Do we have to report these plants? (laughs) Well, technically they're NR40 prohibited, so they're illegal to have and that they must be destroyed. Um, That's so violent. Yeah, yeah. yeah, Technically, if you're just a a citizen, you would be obligated to destroy it. Bonnie, I want to read you. I want to read you this thing that Tim DM me on Twitter. He said, He said, either way, it would be an honor to have an illegal plant named after me. And then I said, and many plant generations to come. And then Tim said, until it meets its untimely death in a freezer or multiple layers of trash bags labeled DNR invasive plants (laughs) approved for disposal. I was was hurt, Tim. You I mean, I think it, it'd be good to be an invasive plant for a little while or have one named after me, but I'd really like to see that be its end, end game. You know, it's kind of like having your pet spayed or neutered. <laughs> but, you know, I get it. Like, there's an attachment to these things, right? Just tough to get rid of it. So, I get it, Sydney. Yeah, you should still probably get rid of it, <laughs> but I get it. <laughs> <laughs> Fair. Yeah, it's weird because... I don't want to like it because it's like, oh, you're dangerous. (laughs) But I also know, like, it's just a plant trying to live, you know, the same as all my other plants, which I have a lot and I like a lot. They'd be a really ideal plant, but then it's that that feeling of, yep, this is pretty illegal and they're pretty invasive and could cause problems. And very quickly, all of the the joy that I might get from this plant is kind of washed away by the potential problems it could cause. I don't know. I I feel bad for this plant because I know that I might have to end it soon. <laughs> I feel responsible too and like almost guilty that I brought the plant into this existence where now it's going to come to a bad end yeah. because I put it in this situation right. through my illegal activities. Well, I don't know if well, you definitely did put it into that situation, but also someone sold it to you when it shouldn't be available, right? Right. I was complicit, at least. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. And for that, I'm reporting you. As an AIS coordinator, how, how do you feel about the fact that we could very easily order these online and have them shipped to our homes? I mean, it's a bummer, but not surprising. It's 
tough for vendors all across the country to know what Wisconsin's specific laws are. So how do we go about in re reporting this? So you would report it to your local AIS coordinator. So how do you uh, find that person? You can find that on the DNR website. Well, I'm going to Google local AIS coordinator, Wisconsin. I'm Googling Milwaukee AIS coordinator. If you get onto the dnr.wi.gov, website and do a keyword search for aquatic invasive species contacts. So you scroll down to topics and then county or tribal coordinator, and then it just has a list of all the, the contacts. Okay. Do you know Pete Jopke? I know Pete Jopke. He's my, I think he's my person that I would call. Oh, hello. Um, I... Hello? Hello? Yep, this is Pete. Hi. Um, so I am a resident of Dane County, and I... So I, I bought some water lettuce, and um, I wanted to report it to you. Oh, that, like, well, this, thank um, you. Yeah, that this company shipped it to me. Yeah, I got it on eBay, I think. Yeah, because... I just, I looked on eBay just to see if I would find anything and it was, there was quite a few water lettuce available and um, I'll send you the, the website. Yeah, that'd be great. Great. And that, and then um, I'll take a look at that either tonight or tomorrow and I'll, uh, I'll make a few phone calls and, and see what comes of it. But great. that's interesting. That's like, I hadn't seen or heard of this for Oh God, it's probably like seven years now um, where people were were able to get right. into stuff. I thought they really clamped down on it, but I yeah. suppose if you look hard enough, you can find it. You know, I find it interesting that they shipped that water with us because we had a um, we had an invasion on Lake Mendota, oh maybe four or five years ago. Did you hear about that one? No, I heard that there's been like sporadic water lettuce found on Lake Mendota, but I I didn't know more than that. Yeah. Very good. I really appreciate the heads up on that. Okay. Well, thank you so much for... Hey, thanks for reaching out. Have a sure. good rest of your day. Have a good day. Bye. All right. Bye-bye. So while we were talking to Pete, he mentioned something else that was kind of surprising, that in the fall of 2019, a crate of red swamp crayfish were discovered in a parking lot near the Wisconsin River, like in a boat launch. That's weird. Yeah. As we, as we saw, this is a pretty common species that you can find online. And people buy them for crayfish boils. And although you're not supposed to order any non-native live crayfish to Wisconsin, um, it does happen sometimes. And this discovery was surprising and concerning because these crayfish reproduce fast and they outcompete our native crayfish. They can damage infrastructure with their burrowing. You should listen to last week's episode for more info. We covered that. I had actually heard about these red swamp crayfish before because when I was talking about Bob, he told me that these crayfish were left at a boat launch and there was immediately, they called the phone tree of invasive species responders. And I think Tim, our own Tim Campbell was included in that. And they like, you know, secured the perimeter. They had people out searching that area all night just like seeing if there had been any crayfish that escaped and there was an ongoing investigation that bob was could not comment on because it was it was ongoing but um oh my god to figure out to figure out like who left these here mm -hmm. but then i heard about the first introduction of red swamp crayfish in wisconsin and it was like this investigation but 100 times the amount of crayfish and maybe a hundred times the response needed to contain them. And that's what we're going to talk about today. This story starts in the summer of 2009 in Germantown, Wisconsin, which is this little community 25 miles northwest of Milwaukee. And residents of the Esquire State subdivision became concerned when they noticed what they described as small lobsters crawling through their lawns at dusk. Yeah, this story kind of took over our lives. Like, we did more interviews for this Germantown story than 
any other podcast episode we've produced so far. What fascinates you about this story? Um, I guess it's just like the image is so striking and also kind of funny. I don't know if I'm allowed to say it's funny, but it definitely like struck me as funny at first. Just because it's like the most normal suburban pond you can imagine, but then it is completely taken over by like basically small lobsters. And it's just like this image of panicked residents who are like suddenly confronted with this like unexpected, really bizarre, like non-human neighbor. Really just random and kind of like sinister almost. But um, the more I learned about this story, the more I realized that like it was actually very serious and there was a large scale investigation. A million dollars were spent trying to contain these crayfish. And yeah, people devote their entire careers trying to make sure things like this do not happen. Another thing that's interesting about this is that I feel like you hardly ever hear about the first time an invasive species gets established here. Like we've done a lot of reporting on invasive species, but it, a lot of times it's species that have been here for a while or weren't introduced in my lifetime. And by the time that we discover that they're even there, there's kind of no chance or hope to get them out. But in this case, it was the first time that red swamp crayfish were discovered in Wisconsin. And so you do have a fighting chance against them. And another thing is that people still reference this today. So I was surprised to learn about all of this because I have unknowingly driven past this development like a lot of times growing up. But after hearing the story, I kind of wanted to go back and see it again. Germantown is kind of a funny community just in that it's like really, really into its German heritage. Um, what do you mean? I guess like picture... Picture just like a town that was built like between 1950 and 1970, but like everything is stucco, like the McDonald's, but like make it German and stucco. Some of the street signs are in German. It's really funny. I was also hopeful when I went that I could meet someone who was there in 2009 and could tell me a little bit more about what had happened in that place. So Esquire States is right off the main highway. I parked my car in a cul-de-sac and just started walking. So most of the houses in this development, I don't know, they just look like classic subdivision homes. Like this could be literally anywhere in Wisconsin. All of the backyards, they're all situated in a ring around like this kidney bean shaped pond. And then all the backyards slope down into the pond. Um, and then the, the water was like this really striking shade of turquoise blue, um, which I feel like can't be natural. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, so the pond was a lot bigger than I had anticipated, and there's actually this island in the middle of it with a community swimming pool on it, and you can walk to the island across this little bridge, and I could see people sitting out there in like chaise lounges around the swimming pool and there were all these kids laughing and splashing in the water. I really, really, really wanted to see the pond, but I felt like I was going to have to like trespass across someone's lawn to do that. There was like a sign that was like really clearly stating that like you couldn't go back unless you were a resident or like a guest of a resident. So I just kept walking and the first person I met was this man who's outside his house um, doing some lawn work. Hi. Hi, how you doing? I'm good. My name's Sydney. Do you have a sec? Sure. He lives across the street from the pond, and in 2009, he had just moved into the neighborhood. And in addition to crayfish, he told me that the pond is also home to several species of fish, and actually people, like, live there specifically to go fishing in the pond. Do you remember seeing any rusty crayfish? No, I, did, crayfish? I, I never saw any, but uh, I'm pretty sure the ones over there, they did. You know what? You would be better off asking someone with their homes with the back on the little man-made okay. lake. They would know more about it. So I took his advice and I kept walking. The next person I met was a woman named Mary. She was in her front lawn and she told me that she'd lived in this neighborhood for 27 years. Do you fish back there? Uh, I, we don't, but a lot of people do, yes. Yeah. yeah, the kids do a lot. But the water is clean. Did you want to go look back there? Can I? Sure. It's really for fishing in a, in a boat or with paddle boats or something. Mm -hmm. As we walked around her property, Mary told me more about the crayfish problem. She said that the first time she saw a crayfish was actually two years before the 2009 incident. I know I saw it, it was kind of near the 
uh, culvert area that we have in the back where the water drains out. And I had seen it way before it was a problem, but I didn't think much about it. You know, I just kind of thought somebody used it as bait and it'll die out, you know, kind of thing, you know, so, but it didn't, so. <laughs> oh my gosh, she saw it a few years before. Yeah, there is something really, really eerie about that to me. I don't know. It's It feels like one of those moments where two alternative <laughs> realities just kind of diverge. Um, yeah, so if the crayfish were around for a while, but no one did anything, what changed? Mary said that the winter before, all of the fish in the pond had died. Like, at what point did people decide this is a problem and we should... Because they were crawling all over the lawns and stuff, um, somebody on the other side um, actually called the DNR, gave them a picture of it, and asked them if this what, what this species was or anything because it was multiplying quite a bit. So, And I think that's when they kind of got involved, when they realized huh. what it was, actually, and stuff, and how invasive it was becoming. The first thing that the Department of Natural Resources did was send someone out to collect a few samples, which they took to this crayfish expert who worked for the Milwaukee Public Museum. And right away, they were able to confirm that like this was a red swamp crayfish. Two days later, Heidi Bunk remembers getting an email confirming that there were red swamp crayfish in the pond. Heidi is a lakes biologist for the DNR who does everything from coordinating community science programs to issuing building permits to answering phone calls from concerned residents. Heidi has a huge hand in everything that comes next. So August 25th, 2009 is when we get that phone call. There were giant lobsters wandering all over Germantown. That's the call we got. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so we saw one of the original emails that had been circulating around the DNR right when this was starting to break. And they mentioned this man named Tim Zabel. He was the first person to call the DNR and his phone number was listed too. And honestly, it felt like a huge stretch to call the phone number because this was like a decade ago, but we tried to reach him. Hello? Hi, Tim. It's Sydney from the Sea Grant calling back. Is this a better time? Yes. Perfect. Um, so back in 2009 and yes. down the street from where Mary lives, Tim was visiting his sister and nephew. Well, my nephew, so he would have been 12 at the time. Mm-hmm. He, was, he, he always fished in that pond. And that year he was fishing for crayfish because that's all there were and catching them. And he had get a cooler full of, you know, a couple dozen probably. Well, I looked in the cooler. Yeah. <laughs> so that can't be right. But there were so many. I can't, so I'm not a biologist or anything, but I can't imagine that. I mean, there, there were hundreds for sure and probably thousands. And I, I asked my sister would she, if she minded if I contacted the DNR, and she said, sure, no problem. So the DNR springs into action. Scott Van Egren was a natural resources scientist at the DNR back in 2009. Now he's a regional lakes biologist in Rhinelander, but back then he was just finishing up grad school. Scott had some previous experience researching crayfish, and so when he got the email about the red swamp crayfish in Germantown, he knew it was something that he wanted to be involved in. Along with Heidi, Scott would become one of the main handful of people who focused on Germantown. So the DNR staff went down to the pond and saw what they were dealing with. The fisheries staff, you know, right away started to walk around the pond and net and pull out crayfish, you know, I think at first we were thinking, well, this is, you know, these crayfish are sold for crayfish boils, like that that could be it. Somebody just dumped their live crayfish that they didn't completely use all of them and maybe there's not that many. Um, so, you know, they would, they would catch like 10 as they walked around. We asked basically everyone we talked to what their first impression of the crayfish was that day. And everyone said they were huge, like, The biggest ones were eight inches long, and they were more aggressive than anyone expected. Like, (laughs) 
A lot of people that research crayfish are used to like the Wisconsin native crayfish or even the rusty crayfish, which is invasive, which apparently are a little bit more calm and like skittish. They run away from you, but red swamp crayfish will like charge you is what I understood. They're fearless, yeah. The red swamp invasion in Germantown was a particularly big deal because this was the first red swamp crayfish introduction in Wisconsin. Red swamp crayfish had never been recorded in Wisconsin before, but they're kind of notorious throughout the world. They become invasive in a lot of different places. They become really abundant and they spread fast and they're really hardy. We talked to Stephanie P.A. She's a British ecologist and independent crayfish researcher because the species of crayfish that are invasive in Europe are the ones that we have native here in North America. Seeing as Europe in total has only a handful of native crayfish species, Stephanie is really impressed with the ones in the US. The United States is, and in particularly the Southeast, is a global hotspot for crayfish biodiversity. In terms of the number of species that are present, and a lot of them unique to specific areas, in some cases specific river systems or cave systems. You've got cave-dwelling crayfish in some parts of the United States. I went to a crayfish conference down in Missouri some years ago, and there's over 80 species in that state alone. So you have the most amazing wealth of these weird and wonderful animals. Because of global trade, people have been moving crayfish around. And some species of crayfish, including red swamp crayfish, are common in aquaculture. Like people farm them because they're good to eat and they taste like lobsters. The fact that they can be so large is what makes them popular for boils. Red swamp are amazing burrowers. They really are. Uh, and they're also really quite terrestrial. They live down in naturally in southeastern United States. So places like uh, Florida and uh, that, that area. And they live in seasonal ponds. So they're used to things drying up. So they have two survival strategies. One is head out and the other is hunker down. So head out, they will go and walk over land um, until they try and find somewhere that's a, a wet pond they can move into. Hunker down is where they pull up the drawbridge, literally. They're in their burrows. It's drying out uh, outside. So they stop up their burrows with a mixture of mud and spit and try and stay in damp conditions in, in this deep underground burrow and wait it out until it gets wet again. We mentioned it in the last episode, but red swamp crayfish, their burrows can destabilize dams and other earthen structures. So you can see they're pretty tough to control. What we had learned about these crayfish was that they might be able to walk a couple miles across land, and there are lots of little stormwater ponds, drainage ditches. The Menominee River was, uh, you know, within a mile or two of this and what if they got in a river system it would be it would be out of the genie's out of the bottle right you can't you can't put them back in then <laughs> we're not going to get them all if they make it to a river or a stream so this was basically a ticking time bomb yeah the menominee river leads to lake michigan and germantown itself is only a 20 minute drive from the great lakes so yeah for the DNR, the first step was to secure the perimeter, which is, you know, blocking culverts and exits and kind of stretching a fabric fence around the whole lake to make sure that no crayfish got out. But that didn't really work. And the crayfish uh, were not very impressed with this setup. We <laughs> <laughs> just burrowed right under it. So. Now the crayfish are clearly out and they're on the move. So the question is like, where did they go and where are the crayfish now? Because the surrounding area is full of woods and farmland and wetland. And you can just picture like on a bone dry day, all of this would just look like grass, like these culverts and ditches, but like add a little bit of water and all of a sudden 
you have this network of channels like ushering the crayfish out into the great wide world. So it was really important to figure out where they had gone. So at this point, the DNR calls in the water guard. The water guard was this group of conservation wardens who in the summer focused exclusively on protecting Wisconsin's lakes, rivers, and waterways. Chris Hammerla was part of the original response team. He remembers scouting ditches, turning over rocks along highways from the early, early morning until nightfall. The other thing the water guard was trying to do was figure out how the crayfish got there. So they would go around to local schools and ask them if they had been distributing crayfish to students. And he would walk around the subdivision and knock on people's doors and ask them if they had seen the crayfish or <laughs> if they knew anything about where the crayfish might have come from. And like, honestly, I can't imagine outing myself at this point. Like, that would be so embarrassing <laughs> if it was you. <laughs> Um, yeah, here's what that conversation would have sounded like. Hey, good afternoon. My name is Chris Hammerla. I'm, I'm a deputy conservation warden. Um, you've probably noticed the DNR staff working on your pond. We're looking for these crayfish. Perhaps you've seen them crawling across your yard. And that's how you'd open up the conversation. They were going all over the place asking people for information. A few people were like, well, yeah. Um, we, we saw some in our yard, or we saw some crawling across our, our driveway. So at that point it led us, you know, well, when did you see that? Oh, we've been seeing it for the last month. We're like, okay, well, this is a bigger issue maybe than we think. This isn't a new population, and potentially these things have spread. So the water guard expanded its search radius. Now they were looking in places roughly a mile or a mile and a half away from the pond trying to gauge just how far the crayfish could have walked, and that led them to a stormwater retention pond at the police department, roughly a quarter mile away from the pond and across a busy road. So what we actually ended up finding first was just some pieces of red swamp crayfish on a rock, like a raccoon or something had eaten it. So it's like, oh, okay, obviously we need to check this pond out better. So then you kind of look around the pond, well, here's, here's an area with some rocks. You start pulling up the rocks, oh, here's a red swamp crayfish. As they're evaluating how far the crayfish have made it away from the pond, they also need to evaluate how many crayfish are in the pond and like where in the pond are they? Very distinctly remember going down to the pond. It, it was late morning. They were just clearly everywhere in the ponds. So uh, they were abundant in full force. That was Jake Vanderzanden, the director of the Center for Limnology at UW-Madison and someone who spent a career researching aquatic invasive species. He came down to help the DNR learn about the crayfish, where they came from, um, kind of like what their life histories looked like and where they were in the pond so that when they started trying to remove the crayfish, they would be as effective as possible. I remember like the first time I went, I you know was in my swimming suit and going and just, you know, poking around and picking up red swamp crayfish and uh, getting bit, you know, occasionally. Uh, you know, out in the middle of the pond, it was it was fairly deep, but around the edges, there was sort of a nice sort of shallow, shallow area where you could uh, wade and, uh, and find crayfish. And these crayfish were pretty happy sitting in these uh, shallow near shore areas, just hanging out. I remember finding it really not that humorous to be in this, I mean, it, it, I just sort of felt that this pond was nasty. I don't even know why I felt that, but it was the yeah. blue dye. And then it's yeah. also just envisioning all of like the uh, like oils from the road running off into this little pond and everything, you know, yeah. <laughs> stormwater pond. And, uh, and then I asked, and then there's the element of, okay, I need to get in there and I need to be snorkeling around because like I'm the biologist who's supposed to be the one who, you know, really, comes in with these insights about you know the, the location of the burrows and, and that sort of thing. But this is the kind of thing that biologists do, you know, like you end up you end up in golf course ponds and you know it's just the way it is. So yeah. Most of the work Jake does is really academic. He observes invasions that have already happened. For example, the rusty crayfish invasion that has been going on for the last like 60 years in Wisconsin and um, how they impact lakes. But this time felt 
different. We're dealing with a real world situation that we don't have any control over. This is not an experiment. This is a crisis, right? So Jake sent some of his students out to help. Here's what Scott remembers. So within two weeks, we had um, students out there catching crayfish with with many traps. I, I think there were like a hundred some. And, and then the catch went up to like 60 to 100 crayfish a day. They needed someone who was available to lead this trapping. And this person basically needed to drop everything and be able to go to Germantown like almost every day to check the traps for crayfish. And one of Jake Vanderzanden's former students, Aaron Venny Volrath, took on the job. So Erin spent a lot of time in Germantown that first summer. Here's how she describes a typical day. Yeah, so I would um, usually stop by cops on my way out of town, out of Madison, and pick up a whole bunch of beef liver because that was what we would use to set the traps. I mean, definitely like the people at cops thought it was pretty weird when I would be buying, because I would just buy pound, you know, pounds and pounds of beef liver. And definitely not a good smell once it once it sits in the water for a while in the traps. That's one of the worst smells ever. Once we got to got to Germantown, we'd work our way around the pond um, collecting crayfish traps. We would measure the crayfish for their size. We would sex them, um, determine if they're male or female. How many times did you get pinched? <laughs> yeah, you, you, a lot for sure. If these crayfish were from a recent crayfish dump, they would have all been about the same size and the same age. But from the trapping that Aaron and students did, they were seeing crayfish of all different sizes and sexes and life stages. Clearly, they'd been established longer than a few months. And looking at the numbers, I think it was within in like a two month time span, we were we pulled out like 2000 over 2300 crayfish out of the pond. And it was it was a bit overwhelming to just see. We didn't realize how many were in there. <laughs> Once it was clear that there were thousands in the pond, the DNR started thinking about doing a chemical treatment. And by chemical treatment, I mean using chemicals to kill all the crayfish in the pond. <laughs> Just want to acknowledge that there's a lot of euphemisms being used in this episode. <laughs> Naturally, the DNR looked for other people or organizations that had used chemicals before to control crayfish um, because Wisconsin hadn't done this before at all. And it turned out not many other places in the U.S. have really done this. You know, they're really wasn't much out there in the scientific literature about about chemically controlling crayfish. You know, our, our staff were really, you know, kind of trying to break new ground here. So there were a few chemical options to think about. Like you don't want some a chemical that's going to stay in the pond for a long time, you know. And so there was this insecticide that they had thought about using, which to me, I wouldn't have um, gone to insecticide because crayfish aren't insects, you know, but apparently they're close enough to insects that we can use an insecticide. So there is this chemical called purinil that they could use, but the challenge to using any of these chemicals is that there are regulations that prevent you from using them to protect people, I guess. Um, and so, like, you can't use them on waterways in the U.S unless you have the right permits and getting those permits takes like a year. So they wouldn't be able to use this insecticide right now, but they still needed a short-term solution. So they decided to use bleach. So imagine a 4,000 gallon tanker truck showing up in your neighborhood on a Tuesday morning or whatever and pumping bleach into your local pond. Yeah, when I imagine that, I don't think I would be please necessarily <laughs> like I, I guess I would want to um, want to get the crayfish out. I think I would have a lot of questions. Scott and Heidi said that the residents were really understanding with like the gravity of the situation. Yeah. And also, yeah, the bleach did kill everything else that was in the pond, but they also said there wasn't much else in the pond because that fish kill had happened the year before. So. They treated the pond with bleach, and they also had someone like go around to each individual burrow and apply bleach into the burrow to make sure that they were getting the crayfish and that crayfish couldn't hide. And 
the burrows are like pretty easy to spot. They're just like little holes in the ground and like sometimes there's like a little column of dirt where um, you can tell like the crayfish is burrowed out. And they were using like roughly the concentration of bleach that you would want to use if you were gonna clean out your shower. And after this treatment, it appeared that there were no crayfish left in the pond. Heidi showed us a graph of how many crayfish are caught throughout the few months. And after this bleach treatment, the number goes like directly down to zero flat line. But when the DNR came back the next spring, the crayfish were back too. Picture this. It's a Friday night in the summer in Wisconsin. There's blues playing on the radio and you're on your way to a fish fry. Are you getting walleye or perch? I'm a big fan of perch. Interesting. What about you? Um, I think walleye <laughs> most of the time. Um, would you get pan fried or deep fried? Oh, pan fried completely. Same. Yeah. <laughs> Did you know that the majority of the seafood that Americans eat each year is imported from other countries? By purchasing fish from Wisconsin fish farmers and Great Lakes commercial fishers, you're keeping your food dollars close to home and supporting local family businesses. Our fish producers follow laws that protect fish populations, human health, and the environment to produce a sustainable product. Visit eatwisconsinfish.org for recipes, a consumer guide, and more. Wisconsin fish, local, healthy, delicious. The Wisconsin Coastal Atlas is your one-stop shop for information about Wisconsin's Great Lakes coasts. Want to learn more about the lakes around you? Or maybe you're a researcher looking for mapping tools. With the Wisconsin Coastal Atlas, you can browse interactive maps, share open source spatial data, or find the tools you need to make informed management decisions. Find the Coastal Atlas by visiting wicoastalatlas.net. So it's the spring of 2011, and the crayfish were back in Germantown. Meanwhile, there was another instance of red swamp crayfish being reported in Wisconsin, and that was in a pond in Kenosha, Wisconsin. It just like makes you wonder how many other ponds had red swamp crayfish that like we haven't detected, <laughs> you know? I know, I know. Kenosha is also by Lake Michigan, so yeah, not good. Um, but the good thing was that Unlike Esquire Estates, the Kenosha Pond wasn't really connected to anything, streams, culverts, ditches, or anything like that. So they decided to bleach that pond too, and they found that the bleach was killing the crayfish in the water. But it wasn't killing the ones that were in the burrows. In Kenosha, after the bleach treatment, they tried to dig into a burrow with the shovel, and they found crayfish that were alive and well because they had covered themselves in mud which explained how all of the crayfish had survived the winter in Esquire Estates. Also, you need funding to, to do any of this work. And in 2010, the, the funding ran out. They wouldn't be able to continue trapping unless they got more funding and applied for grants and stuff like that. The crayfish didn't take any breaks and the numbers of crayfish climbed even higher than what they initially were. You know, sometimes the demand on my time was just incredible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was a that was a challenge for me. So, if you're working and arriving at the site at 7 a.m. and then you run to your office to do some more bid documents because you ran out of material because you need to get that approved by a bunch of people, you're in the office till midnight. Then you go home and sleep, and then you come back by 7 a.m. the next day. That was challenging. Once the DNR does get funding again. They start looking for expert advice. They decide to invite none other than UK crayfish expert, Stephanie P.A. They kindly invited me out to come and have a look at the site in 2012. Stephanie was really interested to see the site. Like she had been actually advising them for a little bit on this. So Stephanie gets on a plane on her way to Wisconsin. I remember I did have difficulty getting in because I, it, it was, the time of year, of course, I'd been out doing quite a bit of survey work from crayfish here, some of which is manual survey work. And what had happened was that, because I was turning over rocks and looking for uh, white clawed crayfish, uh, it had caused some wear and tear on my fingertips. And so my fingerprints were 
somewhat eroded. So I, and I had to go through the immigration control. I have this these stupid scanner things. You got to put your fingers on them and what have you. And and mine did not match. So it was like taken away <laughs> to a room where I had to be, you know, grilled about whether I was a bona fide visitor. And it's like I'm only here as a guest of the <laughs> Department of Natural Resources in Wisconsin. <laughs> Stephanie has experience using pesticides to control crayfish. Her main thought had to do with the fact that the burrows were above the water level. I said, you've got to deal with the ones that are in the banks. Otherwise, it for sure will not work. So that was why uh, I recommended doing a measure which would dig out the banks and put down an impermeable surface. These are techniques that I'm familiar with from big construction. So the the question with that was what can and can't red swamp crayfish burrow into if they were going to put a new bank on so they designed what they call this crayfish condo study where they take plastic bins and different sizes of rocks and gravel and then um, put crayfish in there to see you know what they can burrow into and what they can't it was amazingly hot when i was there in in Ger germantown i think there was a there was a heat wave going on, so the temperature was up over 40 degrees centigrade, so up over over 100 Fahrenheit. And I'm not used to working in heat like that. But amazingly, despite the fact that red swamp crayfish are, you know, they're an aquatic animal, I think they coped with the heat better than I did. You think, wow, that is an impressive animal. They also learned that raccoons love crayfish. How did they learn that? <laughs> so um, one thing that Stephanie wanted to do while she was there was run these experiments on the island during the night. Stephanie just left some buckets. There were 10 buckets and each bucket had 30 crayfish, so 300 crayfish. And they were testing out like these different concentrations of chemical to see like how the crayfish would respond. But um, she was doing this on the island and the residents didn't want anyone to stay on the island overnight, so Stephanie leaves, and when she's gone, the raccoons come. Here's Heidi. The raccoons essentially had a frat party there, and all that was missing was the crushed beer cans. Um, what did it look like? A disaster zone. There were torn crayfish everywhere, crayfish parts up in trees, on shrubs, stomped on, all the containers were turned over. So. There was quite a party of raccoons that had a, had a pretty good time. The DNR was also wondering, like, could you put pressure on the crayfish if you introduced other predators, so like not just raccoons? Um, so they decide to bring the fish back and they start sucking bass in the pond. And now they're wondering, are the bass eating the crayfish? So to see what the bass were eating, they would go out and catch a bunch of bass and then squirt the back of their throat with water and that actually makes like a fish throw up which I didn't know was possible but the fish will throw up and you can paw around in that and if they're crayfish parts then you know <laughs> that um the bass have been eating the crayfish but some bass seem to have swallowed crayfish but that was only a couple so it wasn't seeming like this was really a good solution. And there was this picture, actually. Um, I can't believe they got a picture of this. <laughs> I know, I feel like that's um, invading this poor fish's privacy <laughs> a tiny bit. But um, you can see down the bass's throat, and then there's one long crayfish antenna that's sticking out. So it's truly like the crayfish is too big to fit inside this bass. Like the bass ate it and then couldn't swallow it all the way. <laughs> yeah. So the next order of business was to do the bank treatment. The bank treatment was this idea that Stephanie recommended. It was a way of completely altering the shore around the pond to make it inhabitable to red swamp crayfish. So they removed all of the brush and plants and trees along the shore of the pond. They brought in giant diggers and scraped away all of the soil and any remaining crayfish burrows 15 feet around the shore of the pond. They lined that with impermeable fabric, brought in truckloads of gravel and rocks, and 
put that on the shore and the neighborhood had their new shoreline. After that, they were able to use the insecticide. So meanwhile, there are still all of these crayfish across the street at the police retention pond, which this pond is completely man-made. It's smaller and nothing else really lives in it. So if they can't eradicate the crayfish in the pond, they decide that they'll just eradicate the pond and completely fill it in. Wow, that seems like a very big decision. Right, like just cancel the pond. The pond no longer exists. Yeah, Heidi kind of spoke to that a little bit. The decision came because we knew that both the bleach and the Purinol were not going to kill them if they were in the burrows. And we wanted to eliminate the habitat for these crayfish. So the idea was to fill in this pond for approximately five to seven years. So when I was in Germantown, I wanted to see the place where this pond had been. And so I went to the police department and I kind of just like walked around the perimeter of the building and it looked really landscaped and nothing I saw struck me as like a space where maybe at one point there had been a pond. And so I went inside and I asked the person who was um, working there, do you know where this pond was? I just want to see it. And she had no idea what I was talking about. And I explained like the crayfish and she said she was working there in 2009 and she was really emphatic that the crayfish had been across the street at Esquire States and had never made it over to um, the police station. And so, so I was really puzzled. I left there feeling really confused and kind of like, maybe I had misunderstood. But then I went on Google Earth and there's this feature where you can like look at historical pictures, like satellite photos. And I want to show you this series of pictures. So this picture is from 2020. You're looking straight down at the police station. There is no pond. <laughs> there's like a tennis court off to the side with the swimming pool that's like probably private property. Um, it just looks like parking lots and there's some roofs, right? Okay, so that's what you saw. Yeah. Okay, now 2010. Look at May 2010. Wait. Oh, I see it. So there's a little kind of rectangular pond. Yeah, except it's not even that little. I would say it's like roughly the... Oh, yeah. Now that I'm seeing the cars. Yeah, so it's like not an insignificant pond. So obviously the crayfish and the pond were eradicated um, at the police pond, but what about the Esquire Estates pond? In 2015, the year after they did the bank treatment and the insecticide, they only found two crayfish that year. In 2016, they didn't find any. In 2017, they found one crayfish. And in 2018, they didn't find any either. How could they go from having zero to one? That makes me feel like there could be more than one, even if it looks like there aren't any, you know? So in this case, complete eradication wasn't achieved. And to be honest, I'm not surprised because I'm pretty sure there were a few red swamps lurking around on the wrong side of the barrier. You know, when you're thinking about eradicating species, like I said, I never want to use that word. I, I kind of don't think we should. It's almost never possible. So I think the lesson learned for all of us is, you know, if you, if you really think you're going to eradicate something, that's a pretty tall order. And if it's not just something in a little pond, it's probably not possible. Throughout this whole time, there was this ongoing investigation to see how these crayfish got in. No one really wanted to commit to a single theory, but I'm just curious like, from what you've heard, are there any that you think sound the most plausible? I don't know. I think leaning towards like the crayfish boil theory, maybe someone ordered a box of live crayfish and then somehow they got in because I don't know, it just seems like it would take so many crayfish initially to create an invasion this big. What do you think? Yeah, I think um, the more people have been involved, the more likely it is that we would have an answer right now. And the fact that we don't, I think it was like a very small number of people, if not one person. There are still a lot of lessons that the scientists involved have learned from this. First of all, they've learned just how to contain and control red swamp crayfish, which 
you know, there hasn't been much research on. While they were conducting all of these surveys and bitches around the police department, they also made some other discoveries. For instance, they found a few rare species of frogs and even rare native crayfish. And that was surprising to Scott because he doesn't usually think to monitor environments like this. When we were talking to Stephanie, she could only name one place in the world where red swamp crayfish were completely eradicated from a system. And that was the pond in Kenosha, Wisconsin. The DNR had decided to fill in the Kenosha pond, the same as they did with the police pond. This infill method was new as well. Wisconsin was the first ever place in the world to use this, this method of filling in the pond, according to Stephanie. On June 21st, 2019, there was another red swamp crayfish dump that was reported. An open box of crayfish was left at a boat landing in Sauk Prairie along the Wisconsin River. And the crayfish were all caught within 24 hours of this incident thanks to a quick response. But Scott remembers what it was like to get an email about this, not knowing how far the fugitive crayfish had traveled. My heart kind of sank a little when I, when I saw that. As soon as I read Wisconsin River, it's kind of like, oh, we're, you know, you can't stop that. Had somebody like found a red swamp crayfish in one of the wetlands along the Wisconsin River, I would have had almost no hope that we could have really um, eradicated them. It's just such a big, open, beautiful system. And given these things, life history and being able to move, I don't know that that would have been realistic. So I asked Mary, the woman who lived at Esquire States, who I talked to at the very beginning, I asked Mary if she had any wisdom for people who might live in communities similar to hers. And she said that the most critical thing someone can do is do not stock crayfish or anything else in your pond or your river. Situations like this are so preventable. Just do not stock crayfish or anything else in your local pond or wetland or lake, river. Just do not do it. <laughs> Introduced is produced and hosted by Bonnie Willison and Sydney Whiteout. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast with a friend. You can find Wisconsin Sea Grant on Twitter at uwiscseagrant and on Facebook at University of Wisconsin Sea Grant and Water Resources Institute. We'd love to hear from you. Send in your questions and comments to bonnie at aqua.wisc.edu. You can listen to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Play. Thanks for tuning in.